You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about The Awakening, because that's what you asked us to do. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. <laughs> oh dear, Simon, what's wrong? Is it because you've broken your arse wiping hand? <laughs> <laughs> that's well, the... actually, it's factually correct, yes. So tell me, what do you do when you've had a poo? <laughs> this is going to be the tone, isn't I'm, it? <laughs> let, all I can say is I'm learning fast. And moving quickly dexterous. <clears throat> you drew a drawing. You did a you did a piece of art with oh, the Starburst yeah, yeah. magazine with your left hand. I was quite impressed with yeah, that. Yeah, there is a Starburst illustration created by my left hand. Dear listener, it's not like you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, so we've just watched the Awakening. Right before we have any thoughts about what we thought of The Awakening <laughs> as we sat and watched it tonight. <laughs> Lee, mm. when was the last time you saw The Awakening? When it came out on DVD. So you watched it on DVD, actually. Yeah. So that's probably in the last five years. Five, ten years, was it? came as a... It was, it was part of something else, wasn't it? It was with the Gunfighters. Oh, yeah. Gunfighters is great. It was quite recent, I think. It was I think 2010, maybe. Oh, no, maybe a bit before that. No, it feels like six, seven years ago. That's a fairly recent release. It's since we've been... Is it? Doing this. No, I, no, I don't think it's since we've been doing this. <laughs> Do you think? No, because that was the last two years of releases. We started this in 2012, didn't we? Did we? Or 2011? No, mm, 2012. Yeah, we started yeah, this maybe in I'm 2012. thinking that because I, I remember it. The feature on it in um, Dot Two magazine. Yeah, it could be twenty ten, I suppose. I didn't get on the internet till two thousand and eight, and it was definitely two years after that. Because I remember I was predict because people were saying, um, "Oh, it'll be released with the Frontios, like it was on VHS," mm. and I remember saying, "It won't be because that's two Davison stories. If you want to package a two part story with something else to try and make the package more." exciting to people who are not likely to buy it and the gunfighters wasn't a particularly popular story i mean the gunfighters has got an audience that likes it but it's not universally popular right i said they both present a faux version of history and they've both got horses they'll stick (laughs) those two together i did i said they'll call the set horses in history I think I remember you saying that actually it was only a joke when i said it but it turned out to be true (laughs) horstery Ooh. Yeah, okay, Simon. Sorry. <laughs> How long is it since you saw The Awakening then? Since it was transmitted. Okay, so not going into what we thought of it tonight, watching it together, because obviously when you watch it in company, you're 
comments to one another will affect the viewing experience. So the last time you watched it, Simon, mm. when you saw it, when it was first on, what did you think of it then? My memories are that I didn't uh, take a lot of it in. I thought I was disinterested in it and just that I didn't really understand what was going on. So my that memory... it was a bit of a nothing, sort of. Or... Well, maybe my brain made excuse for, excuses for it that I just kind of lost interest in it and I didn't take it in. It was a two-parter shown on, if I remember rightly, two consecutive nights. Mm. So it was all over and done within 24 hours and 24 minutes. I do remember being disappointed in it in as much as a two magazine had fairly good features on it and there was pictures of the malice, which looked quite impressive. In photographs. In photographs, I will say no more. Mm. Um... But as I say, I, my memories are very vague of it, and I just, <laughs> rather than blaming the programme, I blamed myself for not really taking it in. Yeah, fair enough. What did you think, Lee, when when you first saw it, back when it was broadcast? I think I was quite <coughs> excited about the idea, again. I think, Simon, I saw advert. There must have been pre-adverts. Pre-adverts. Previews. Mm, previews. There was a preview, um, yeah. There was, wasn't there? And I remember getting quite excited about it, because I quite like the, the idea of an historical... I love the visitation, love the black orchid. So I got quite excited about it. And then when I saw it, I i mean, obviously I hadn't seen the demons at that point, but I kind of recognised the, right, the church yeah. falling and that sort of thing. And I thought, oh, this is probably a bit like the demons. And I'm not like you. I It was an instantly forgettable experience. <laughs> I didn't not like it. I just didn't get it. And therefore it didn't become... A classic, and you know, it wasn't something I was thinking about or talking about over the next few weeks. Well, having sat through season 20 and hated it from start to finish, pretty much, and I was having great big problems with the 1980s anyway at this point, I rather liked it. I thought it was a bit more because I think I've said this on a podcast a while ago about season 18. I think I said it, I said every first episode. Pardon you, Lee. Every first episode felt like it was getting back to traditional Doctor Who. Mm. And then when you got through the rest of the story, it disappeared up its own backside again. That was season 18 to me. And that carried on through season 19 and season 20. <coughs> and season 21, which this was the second story. The first was Warriors of the Deep, which felt to me like a good story with bad production values. Mm -hmm. And this one at the time, felt to me like a good story with good production values and also a fairly classic story. Mm. So I actually rather enjoyed this one. This was, mm. and I think season 21 <clears throat> was the first season where I videotaped them and watched them back. And I think I probably only ever watched it back about once, maybe twice, but I enjoyed it. <clears throat> there, there are elements in it that I enjoyed. I remember as, you know, there were, because... It has things like Children of the Stones, Wicker Man, all the things that appeal to me, that kind of strange, isolated village. I've always liked those stories. Um, so it should really be, to me, the story, you know, of Peter Davis here that I should be going, oh, that's the one. Yeah, but I yeah. think that's the problem. It has too many elements of those other things. We'll trying come to come into what we think of it now in a minute. Yeah. One thing about the preview is they made a big deal out of um, Polly. I was going to say Polly Walker. That's not right. Polly James. Mm. <coughs> oh, yeah. You'll have to excuse me, I'm just recovering from a cold. <clears throat> mm. 
they made a big deal out of the fact that Polly James was in it yeah. because Nerys Hughes had been in Doctor Who oh, yeah. two years previously, and so this was uh, completing the collection on the Liver Birds almost. Almost as if, in fact, John Nathan Turner was a huge Liver Birds fan and he was just ticking boxes. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he wouldn't but do that, would he? Nerys got the better story, surely. <clears throat> oh, spoilers. <laughs> right, okay, we watched it just now. <clears throat> okay, in a nutshell, before we go into it in any more detail, Lee, you can barely contain yourself. In a nutshell, what did you think of it tonight? <laughs> Bearing in mind, our listeners voted for this story, and they all said... We want the awakening because we'd like to see that story getting a little love. What have you got oh. to say, Lee? <laughs> a little love? How dare you, We've got the reputation of being the ones who give shows, shows love. What a bunch of evil swans. I reckon they must have had a private message on Facebook going, let's give them that one. Yeah, yeah. Cool, blimey, Governor. Um, oh, it's a hodgepodge of really nice little ideas. It's messy. It's... Badly lit. It's badly directed. It's not particularly well acted. Um, <laughs> Jesus H. Corbett. I don't know really. What are to you say. are you holding back a bit there, Lee? Look, if they'd have done a, a historical set in that period, which I find interesting, I think that would have been better. I liked the I liked the war games idea. That appealed to me. Yeah, but do you remember <clears> it within like four minutes of the the programme starting, we were laughing out loud at the hamminess of the acting straight away. Mm. I mean, I think that's the, the 80s. Well, that's anyway. not a problem with the story. No, no, no. But that's it, a problem with the director. Yeah. So they, they, they're coming in kind of... Rah, 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 rah. <clears throat> but then you've got the reactions of the modern woman who's standing, because she is the only modern person, I know, and the grandfather a bit later, but the modern person reacting in a way that you wouldn't react. If somebody, if your mates were going a bit doolally, in a Cavalier's outfit, whatever it is they're wearing, you'd be going, yeah, I think I'd better be in the hospital. The, the police, they've gone mental. It has to be said at this point that Simon <laughs> and I have thought the same thing about you on many occasions <laughs> in the past, Lee. Go on then, Simon. What did you think of it tonight? Well, the polite description is fragmented. Okay. Don't worry about being polite. It is. It's like a big mosaic of... Um, Shite. Well, yeah, it's mainly made up of pieces of... Shite. Yes. But in amongst them... Uh, there's nothing particularly shining. Um, I thought Polly James was all right, and I well, thought Glyn, is it Glyn? Glyn Houston. Glyn, yeah, he was very good. He was the heart of the story. He well, was. she was supposed to be, but he ended up being it. As always, yeah. Peter Davison did his best <laughs> with it. The rest of it was pretty darn awful. <laughs> nice. I'm afraid. Um, <clears throat> I felt embarrassed watching it. I, I I've got to go through these with my son. Eventually. Do you know what I think? And I don't know whether I can with this. I I hate and I resist putting things into you know pre, uh, directors' heads that they might have been a certain way, but it's almost like I couldn't really give a toss. It's well, a Michael like, Owen Morris, who directed it, this was his only Doctor Who, so. We've no idea really whether he... Well, we've no idea really whether he really understood Doctor Who. Because what seemed to be going on there is that he's taking this script and he's thinking, this used to be a kid series, right? But he's also... You can sort of tell that at the same time he's thinking, it's not a kid series now. 
So I have to try and strike a kind of balance somewhere in between doing it for kids and not doing it for mm-hmm. kids. Mm-hmm. And what he's gone for instead seems to be kind of this ridiculously, you know, this ridiculously over top thing, over the top thing that's almost verging on pantomime, which is something that was an accusation that was laid at Doctor Who later yeah, on. Definitely, but it kind it's, of it's the Sayward <clears throat> paradox, really, isn't it? <laughs> the Sayward paradox. Well, it wasn't meant to be pantomime. Sayward wanted gritty. That's what I mean. He wanted it's like a it mix to, of children yeah. and gritty again. He wanted it to be like the Sweeney, and that Michael Owen Morris <laughs> is trying to do the Sweeney meets play away. Yeah, but do you know yeah. what? There's little signs in there which make me think, regardless of genre, if you're a director and you're directing drama, little things like the fact that Tegan is there to see her grandfather, and the moment she sees him. She treats him like a stranger. This bloke has just turned up. So there's no... In- and, and they go think, off and do something else. Uh, I mean, you read the script and you work out, right, what are the relationships going on? Oh, there's Tegan. <clears throat> she's there to, to see her grandfather. So the whole episode, the whole story, she should be wanting to see her grandfather. That's the reason she's there. And when he turns up, she, she, she doesn't even look at him. It has, to be, it has to be borne in mind that... Eric Pringle wrote a four-part story. I don't know whether he wrote the whole script for the four parts. I think he just wrote the breakdown for the four parts. And I can't quite remember. But Eric Sayward was responsible for the draft that made it to the screen. Mm. <clears throat> He'd have been better and, for sticking with making crisps. <clears throat> well, actually, I think there's enough material there for a four-part story. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, I may be selling the director short. I mean, mm. I mean, you know, equally, you could say any of the actors there could have turned around and said... That's your grandfather over there. Why aren't you standing with him? And I, and always, it's the script. I mean, I'm, it's the I'm words not, on the page. I'm focusing on one thing, but I'm just saying it as an <clears> example that it's a sign of not really caring and not really getting into the... No. I think that's more to do with the I'm, script than the director, to be think? fair. Yeah. Okay. Because <clears throat> you've got lines like, oh, you know, <clears throat> virtually the opening line of the whole thing was... What are you doing here, school teacher? Which is just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Flash Gordon, isn't it, really, yeah. But yeah. the worst thing is later on, where Turlow gets thrown into the um, barn or whatever it is they're using as a prison, and this bloke suddenly stands over him and says, Oh, what are you doing here? I'm Tegan's grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like... And Turlow what? looks up and says, Hello, Richard Dawkins. Yeah, but the point being, why would Andrew Verney think that this complete stranger who's just suddenly appeared out of nowhere when there's no way from the TARDIS that Tegan could have told him that she was being expected. He didn't say I'm Tegan's grandfather, but why would he just give him his full name? No. It is an odd like script though, isn't it? When you mention about the school, <coughs> school teacher thing, you know, to say that right at the beginning, just to, you know, to tell everybody she's a school teacher, you have to have a reason for her being that in the story. And nothing comes of that in the end, does it? No, there's loads and loads of things like that. It's like, yeah, it's like you say that obviously you've got four parts. They were probably going to do something with the school teacher angle. Maybe they took her to well, a, she takes mm. her to a school, for instance. She looks up it in the book and she finds out what it is. War games, isn't it? So presumably, <clears throat> presumably, as a school teacher, her mm. job in the story is to investigate. <coughs> yeah, the historical side of it. Exactly. And Andrew Verney is supposed to be the local historian. Although, how many uh, villagers actually have an official historian is a question that I've been begging ever since I first saw it. Yeah. (laughs) But 
what's going on there is that those two characters have been thrown in the story in order that in the four-part version, presumably, the pair of them can get together and say, right, this is how we solve it, because history does this, and the actual events were this, but history teaches us this. So we've got 350 years or whatever it is, yeah, about 320 years or whatever it was, I can't remember the exact dates. They've got 320 years of hindsight to be able to work something out. And actually, the story's resolved with this whacking great deus ex machina when Peter Davison walks into the TARDIS and presses a few buttons and the malice on the wall sicks up a load of green gunk. And that is a huge problem with the 80s, mm -hmm. especially when Eric Say was there. It's like there's got to be a gunk scene in every yeah. episode. I missed that line of Tegan saying, oh, I suppose I'm the one who's got to clear that up. <laughs> but it's like the master making his appearance at the end of part two of Time Flight, green gunk everywhere. And the sea devils <laughs> melting into green gunk at the end of the Warriors of the Deep the just was the previous gunk, week. All the Saturday morning programs had gunk <clears> on it. Didn't well, they? no, it but like a job lot on gunk. It's not just that. It's because the video nasties were prevalent. Yeah. And so green gunk coming out of people's heads was Doctor Who's version of the video nasties. It was halfway between Tis Was and I Spit on Your Grave or something. <laughs> To what might be a sign as a well that, of, of the depth of the four-parter is the fact that right at the end you've got Will, um, where they suddenly turn around and say, um, it, surely if the malice isn't here, why is Will still here? And uh, and I thought, oh, thank God, they've actually kind of tied something up. But actually it's probably a sign that Will's character was supposed to be woven into it far more. So you yeah. Well, exactly. It's the opposite of tying it up. Mm. And actually it's the doctor like... doesn't give an explanation. He does that thing <coughs> no. where he says, it's oh, like an I'll admin... tell you later. Yeah. I'll look it up in the TARDIS computer banks. It's like an admission on the scriptwriter's behalf. That he has no clue what he's doing. Because the other thing is, here's the malice, <clears throat> which feeds off psychic energy. And there's all this weird stuff about, and it's using um, Dennis Lill's character as some kind of a, a prism to gather the energy. Mm. But what it's actually doing is, it's not gathering the energy, it's using Dennis Lill's character to disperse the energy by bringing all these apparitions through time, mm. which mm. must cost an awful lot of energy, far more energy than they're getting from six guys on horseback riding around the village. But uh, as well as that, the malice is feeding off psychic energy, not temporal energy. There's no explanation whatsoever given for how it would be able to mm. bring people forward through time, even as apparitions. It just it, makes no sense. The whole thing felt a bit drama-rama to me. <clears throat> you know, even drama-rama actually had great um, stories with you know tied up beautifully. Then they were about ghosts, for goodness sake. I'm no director, right? And if I, if you were to give me a camera to direct, and I have done before with little films, they're a bit amateur, okay? This was like me filming Doctor Who. There's so many terrible um, cutaways, edits, the really bad lighting. There's fantastic... Oh, yeah, where ca the characters walking into scene and then suddenly <clears throat> seeing someone who's right behind yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, but there's... A, yeah, exactly. There's that, yeah. that lovely scene where the Doctor has a line which makes... You know, he smiles at the end and walks away. He says something sarky. Yeah. And then smiles so yeah. that the character knows he said something yeah. sarky. But they're all in Complete dark Because they're too close to the camera <clears throat> and they haven't put them back further on their spots. But it, it's simple, stupid mistakes that were just really bugging me. And all that polystyrene, squeaky... 
promised time. Yeah, right, there's a oh, sign of the how times. Much more really. we got? Mm. <laughs> how long we got? Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. We'll pick this apart forever, this one. This is the thing. We usually forgive this sort of stuff. But we're, yeah. we're normally optimistic and kind of chirpy about everything, even the bad ones. Well, <laughs> I mean, well there it's are not things... a bad idea for a story, is it? It really isn't. Yeah. There it could have worked. There are things that are storytelling grammar, television grammar. Like you say about characters not realising somebody's standing right next to them because they're off camera. That's okay, that's fair enough. In order to do that <clears throat> sort of as it would really be, you'd have to break the shot up with have some with having somebody walking around from a corner or then walking up to a corner and you'd have to have the camera on the move and you'd have to have an edit with a broken shot and you'd have to have establishing shots of people moving into position. So having somebody walking in from somewhere where they'd actually in reality be seen, that's just storytelling grammar. <clears throat> but there are examples here where the director has not got the wits not to have people walking through the shot and doing the same thing. What's that great thing with Peter Davison trying to creep towards the main action with about 20 soldiers? Yeah, it's what's, like what, he's trying that? to get past the maypole. Hidden in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, no. he's trying to get past the maypole, so he walks right up to it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that great bit as well where Dennis Lil says you have seen what's going on here and there's six blokes behind him putting up a maypole and it's like he's already been talking about the fact that they're putting up a maypole <laughs> why is it such an issue that people have seen him putting yeah. up a maypole that he's already said he's putting up and there's some really oh, oh, his limbs are overacting in this whole thing <laughs> oh Dennis Lil yeah, a lot of oh, yeah, it's the, the point the point just goes on forever that the point pointing, doesn't it yeah I did that when I was I was twelve at school, and we did this amateur film, obviously amateur film, and I had one little scene, and I spent the whole thing pointing at this person while I was talking. It's really, you know. Oh, yeah, but when you're twelve, you put your hand up, and all of a sudden it becomes an issue that you yeah. don't know when to bring it back down again. Do I bring it down now, or is it too early? Yeah. Oh no, but now I've left it too long. It's too late. If I take it down now, people will see me taking it down. And your hand just stays there while all this yeah. stuff goes through your head. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it was like on Horsebank, right there with him. <clears throat> oh, it, if that, as if that wasn't bad enough. Even when I went, when I went into makeup, um, they said, "Do you want a moustache?" And I said, "Oh, go on then." He said, they said, "What colour do you want your moustache?" I said, "Oh, oh, I can be a greying professor because I was like a scientist and that." So I said, "I'll go and use the white." So I did the scene. It looked like I'd been drinking milk. <laughs> Presuming you still had your certain proper normal colour hair. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> nice. There's <clears throat> a picture somewhere <laughs> of me pointing <laughs> with a milk moustache. <laughs> you do know we're recording, now, guys. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Oh, God. <laughs> Where's God. Mark when you need him? <laughs> oh, what a terrible, terrible piece of rubbish we've just watched. What a, sorry? <clears throat> terrible piece of rubbish we've just watched. But it's got saving graces. We all enjoyed watching it. There's no doubt in that. No. Do you know what? I actually didn't. This this was the really strange thing. I felt betrayed by Doctor Who. I can watch the, I even watched the Sensorise all the way through without falling asleep the other month. The other year or whatever, and actually, I kind of enjoyed certain sections of it mainly because good. you had your back to it and you were typing <laughs> on the computer at the time. That's probably, yeah, actually. Um, I was seeing it through closed eyes, but uh, no, The Awakening. Oh, wow, don't know, I've, is it tonight? I don't know what it is, but there's three of us sitting here not really getting on with it. I don't think I ever want to watch that again for any reason. 
Wow. Well, one day you'll have to show it to you. So. I have to watch the case. I, would, I, am, I know you said it's thin on the ground when we were talking earlier, but I, I might read the uh, Target book just to try and glean something from the story, just to try and work out. I think there's exactly more in the Target book than there is on the telly. Oh, not I think a good. lot, if I remember right. I can't remember. It's long. I, I read it when it came out. I've not seen yeah. it. But the Target book's written by Eric Pringle, which is a weird situation because Eric Pringle is therefore writing the novelization of the Eric Saywood script of the <laughs> Eric Pringle story that was originally twice as long. Yeah, well, maybe it's an opportunity for him to try and redress <laughs> it a bit. I so, wonder whether he put stuff back in. I do uh, believe, though, at some point during the 1980s, there was a diktat that came down from the editors in the target range that if it wasn't on the telly and it changed the story, you wouldn't put it back in. I'm sure somebody we know has mentioned something like that before because he thought, well, I've got the target book, I can write the original script. And they said no, because that's not what ended up on the telly. It wasn't Andrew, that was, be Andrew, was, it? was it? No, no, because he, he did put some stuff. He did, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. But he's, he's said that Yeah, he, no, you can put a little bit back in, but you yeah. can't change the story back oh, no, to what he, it was he when it was off the telly. He said that he literally based it on what was on the screen and, yeah, then, yeah. and then padded it out. I think. It yeah, probably was Andrew yeah. then. That's how you do it. <clears throat> Andrew Smith, for anybody who's thinking, Andrew, they're talking about. Oh, yes, yeah, but we know it's Andrew. 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 Yeah. <laughs> no, anyway, so what about the actual brilliant, uh, what was he calling him? Ma- Ma- Magus Manus? Mal- the Malus. Malus, he forgot his name, I don't care. Malus rhymes with Phallus. The great design of the Malus coming through the what did you what did you think of that JR? Well, as I said when we were watching it, when they were running around the corridors underneath, you kept expecting them to come around a corner and find his feet dangling through the ceiling and then start tickling them. Yeah, Simon said it should have been his bollocks and stuff. <laughs> it's stone stone pedals. Like Simon said, in photographs it's quite a nice design. Mm. And you can say this about Doctor Who monsters over the years. Yeah. Something like a monoid, if photographed, you know, sympathetically, actually looks rather good. Whereas on screen, the monoids are yeah. ridiculous. Sensorite. And cheap and horrible. Years. All I had was yeah. a black and white photograph of the Sensorite. And they look wonderful. They did. They did, yeah. It's a nice design, but <clears throat> it's probably representative of almost everything about this story. Mm. There's lots of nice ideas, but nobody's actually thinking about them. Like the plot, there are lots of things going on in the plot, like all these people being brought forward through time, 350 years or whatever. Interesting idea, but, as I'm always saying on this podcast, you need to come up with a premise and make sure that all your other ideas are in service to that premise. And at no part of this premise is actual time travel part of what's going on. Mm. <clears throat> it's just thrown in randomly, like it is in Mordrin Undead, mm. in order to get them out of, you know, tight corners in the plotting of the thing. It's like, oh, we don't know what to do at the end here to make it more dramatic because the malice is just this face stuck in a wall. I know, we'll have three cavaliers appear in ghostly light and attack everybody, and that'll make it more exciting. And then they behead somebody, because it's an Eric Saywood script, and then they disappear. Yeah, and then all, all his mates <clears throat> are happy at the end. So, there were these ideas which, if you thought them through and actually had a good reason for them to be there, would be good ideas. Mm-hmm. And the malice is exactly the same. There's no real reason, apart from baffle gap, 
why there's one malice in the wall of the church, another little one in the TARDIS, and then a photograph of the parent malice somewhere else with the white flashy lights all around it. Who's the old bloke from Family <coughs> Guy who appeared in the bar? Oh, the, yeah. the old leper with the moves? Yeah. Would you like to see my malice? It's like, yeah, but that's another... Bring him forward. We're bringing him forward through time because we need to get Tegan back out of the church and we can't think of any other way than giving her the spooks. It's quite a spooky image, but you have to have the atmosphere there. It was a in order it was it to... weird image, though, yeah. wasn't it? Because it started from his stomach Waste, to, and his then it went up to his head. To his yeah. little move. He had tiny little moves, and then it went to his head in a terrible zoom. If you'd already established an atmosphere of weirdness and spookiness, then yeah. bringing that in at that point could have yeah, been yeah. really spooky. Yeah. But as it is, you just run into the church from broad daylight. Falls on the floor, moobs appear, and she's got to get the hell out of there. And the other thing is that the effect, I don't know if it affected anyone else the same way, the effect with the the kind of the array, the aura. The glittery light. Yeah, it made me think, oh, it's something electronic, it's something technological. Yeah, because they were squares. It was a similar effect to um, the Stones of Blood, wasn't it? The Justice Mm. thing, sprites or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And also the Vardens, it's that similar kind of shimmery. Yeah, but that was yeah, it was a plastic bag, wasn't it? <laughs> but yeah, but because it was squares, it looked like it was a computer generated. Well, obviously well, it wasn't computer are, generating yeah. it, but in the story, Big didn't pixels. need it though. No, because just the thing appearing by itself is already spooky enough. It's mm. <clears throat> a case of pushing it too far and spoiling it by doing so. <clears throat> what I was coming to was so they're throwing ideas at it and not thinking it through. And so, malice. What could be scarier than a giant devil's head in the wall of the Mm. church? Mm. But there's no... It's like, that's an exterior wall on the church, right? So, you know, how is that wall deep enough that you've actually got room to have the malice there? Why is it only a head? Where's the rest of its body? Mm. And as you've done the head that big, like the face of Bloody Bow... <laughs> it's, it's a bloody bear. It's completely immobile. You've taken oh, out yeah. any drama from the situation. Well, rather, and in fact, yeah. we said it when it first appears. All of a sudden, everybody turns their back on it and starts talking. This giant devil's yeah. head has just appeared in the wall. You, expect, you don't turn yeah. your back on it and start chatting. Yeah, I've expected Peter Davison to sort of like thumb behind him and sort of say, "Here, look at this." Uh, yeah. You know, we're in trouble from the malice, don't you know? You know that thing standing right behind us, don't you know? <laughs> rawr, 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 yeah, but rawr. they do that in every single scene. It's like the actors. Uh, well, they plainly know that it's not a real creature, but they're not acting as, as if, if it, it is. is. So therefore, it's just not doing the job. I wasn't sure whether the malice, because it was coming through bit by bit, bits of the wall were flying off and it was getting more and more as it went, that it was a bit like the Cybermen in Death in Heaven, where it wasn't quite ready, it was a bit dizzy. It was still kind of coming through. You but get I don't no think impression there was, anything, of that. there was anything in the script saying that. So and what they didn't do, they made this giant head that was so inanimate, mm. they couldn't do anything with it. So, yeah, so the bit after it appears and they turn their back on it, all of a sudden the guy operating it just stops operating it because somebody else is the focus of the scene. So it's just like this absolutely static model in the wall behind him. I couldn't make the connection there. And then you had the little malice in the TARDIS. It would have made more sense if it was kind of... great when it first appeared. If if they'd had one on every pillar in the TARDIS. 
as if there was a number of them. That was how it's propagating itself. It was mm. that would have been because that was, was quite creepy. All of a sudden, he, he sort of says, "Oh, don't yeah. carefully, don't disturb it." It would have been a there. lot creepier if they'd have just gone with a small one and forgotten about the big one altogether. Absolutely, yeah, <clears throat> definitely. But what they didn't do was give you any sense of what the malice was. You know, this is often my problem with stories, is that if you come up with an alien race, you need to somehow give an impression of how that alien race has evolved to where it is and where it's evolving to and how it survives and how it propagates. I'm not saying that you spell out, oh, this is how they make love to one another and this is where their children come from and this is what it eats and this is how long it takes to digest. What I'm saying is you need to have a sense that this alien hasn't turned up just for the benefit of the story that it's in, but that actually there's a backstory of some kind I mean, behind off, it. Offhand comment, isn't there, in the, in the TARDIS right at the end, isn't there, about it being engineered or... Yeah, but that's like. But this is Doctor Who. But you anyway. can't. There's a lot of those sort of throwaway lines, isn't there? About. But, oh, that but then creature. that would have made. But it's television. You don't say it. You don't say it. You no. have to show it. Yeah. You have to show. I'm not saying you have to show malices having sex with one another and making little malices. What I'm saying is, if you come up with a comment at the end that says it's been engineered. You have to show on screen for it's only in the second episode for the, for the twenty five minutes that it's on screen. You have to show a creature that's been engineered. I'm not talking about what it looks like. I'm talking about what it does. But all it does is turn up in the wall, open its eyes and close them again, and then open its eyes and close them again, and then open its eyes and close them again, and that's it. And the little one just sits on the wall and then pukes up the green gunk, and that's it. We don't get any impression that the malice is actually connected with what's going on around it from what we see on screen, other than that the Doctor tells us that it is. And that the guy's possessed. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. You don't get any impression that the malice is actually possessing the guy, no. apart from the fact that the Doctor tells us. You have to show us. You have to so, show us. There's some glowing green eyes, you know. Those, yeah, those well, you said eyes. that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That would have done it, but... Really, what you needed was some kind of scene where the man and the creature actually have yeah. a connection on screen. Dialogue, presumably. If the malice is intelligent enough to be doing all this stuff, bringing people forward through time and using psycho uh, psychotic energy, whatever. Psychotic energy. Psychotic energy. <laughs> yeah. May as well, that's what the story's about. If the malice is intelligent to do all this, it must have a communication system. So why is it just sitting in the wall doing nothing? There should be communication. So it gives the impression of being at one with the stone, the way it's designed. Well, that yeah, I know. It's, but what it should do is there should be a scene where Dennis Lill's character speaks with the voice of the malice. Yeah. So you see the connection between the malice and Dennis Lill. Mm. You see that he's actually being controlled by it. Because actually what we see on screen is just some guy who's getting a little bit too excited about the war games, right? Mm. Nothing he actually does, right up until the very end where he starts threatening to kill people. But nothing he does prior to that shows you that he's being controlled. All it does is show you that he's just a little bit overexcited about what's going on. The Mara then, then, yeah, but when he, get, I mean, when he gets into the church, you've got the moment where he's holding the two pistols at everybody. Um, and his eyes are going a little bit, you know, he's, he's a bit starey. So that's the first time you really get to see him under the, the, the influence. 
of the of the malice. But but by that he point, never, it's too late. He, he's never looking at it, talking to it again. He has his when he before he dies, he has his back to it again, and he says, "But he promised me lots of power." He almost does that thumb behind him type thing, like you yeah, yeah. Mm. him behind me. He promised lots of power. Well, let's see him promising you the power. Yeah, mm. turn around and go, yes, oh Lord, or something, I don't know, with his big hammy acting. Yeah. Look at the damn thing. He needs make a to connection. speak with the voice of the malice, even if it's only yeah, once. Yeah, there was no voice, was there? No, even if it's only once, we need, we need to be able to see <laughs> that the malice communicates rather than just being told yeah. by Dennis Lil, he told me that I'd have lots of power. That doesn't sell it, I'm afraid. Yeah, we <clears> need <throat> our psychic cliches. There's a thing about television where people say, show, not tell. And then some people will complain about certain expository items in scripts as being tell, not show. No, that's not what show, not tell means. You can tell people about things that have happened. That's fine. Show, not tell means that if you're going to tell the audience that a man is being controlled by a creature, that audience needs to see that man being controlled by that creature. If you're going to tell an audience that the creature's bringing people forward through time... You need to see that the creature has some connection with them and is doing it for a reason rather than just being told about it. Show not tell is not about exposition because, you know, you don't need to see everything that caused the circumstance that the, to bring the story about. Show not tell is about all the things that are on the screen in the story adding up and making sense. And in the case of this, whether it's because it was reduced from four episodes to two and somebody threw out the rational stuff that would have made it all add up or whether it was not there in the first place but what you get on screen doesn't add up to any rational sense it's yeah. just ideas thrown into a pot and stirred do you know what i'd love the people who accuse uh <clears throat> stephen moffat of plot holes to see what exactly they would make of this because i think they pretty much yeah, <laughs> I think we're so spoiled with uh, with such. Yeah, I'm just writing. saying that. Yeah, you, you know that. I mean, curse of the black spot. You know, I've got a problem with that. But I've got to say that's Citizen Kane compared to what we just watched. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But what I'm saying is that you've got there's people saying that about Stephen Moffat, but it doesn't. It's all there explained, and there are things that do not need to be on on screen. And you make yeah, but I there mean, were literally yeah jumps. It's like, oh, have I missed a bit? And this is, well, and going back to my original point of what it was like when I first watched the, the story, I came away from it thinking I must have been disinterested and not taking it all in because there the seemed to be bits missing. So I obviously didn't take, pay attention it to it. It doesn't make any sense. I remembered all of it. I had watched it all. Mm. I had sat down and watched the whole thing. It's just the fact that the thing was chock full of holes. It doesn't and make going, sense. <clears throat> and going back to what you said before, I think Lee about Andrew Verney, or was it Simon Domeno, about Andrew Verney being Tegan's grandfather and the moment where she meets him, they just sort of like look at each other and then get on with the rest of the action. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> That's just another example of it, another example of a script that isn't thinking about what it's doing, but it's just getting on with the job of getting something onto the screen. Tegan's here, and the very first thing she does when they get into... God, we've watched it like an hour ago. What's Dennis Lil's character called? Or even what's Glyn Houston's character called? I can't remember. They're in Glyn Houston's 17th century room, actually. The very first thing she does when she gets there, where's my grandfather? Oh, he disappeared. What have you done about it? Well, nothing really. Well, I'm going to look for him then. 
puts herself and Turlo and the Doctor into danger to go off and look for him. And then when it turns up, it's just like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Mm. It is. It is full of that. But, I mean, we're looking... I mean, we are... Uh, what's the word? Um, I think. But anyway, the modern way of storytelling is so much different. So, different so much more 80s. sophisticated. That's the word, sophisticated. It's, but... The 80s. We can still go back in time and look at things like Tom Baker era, Patrick Allen, whatever, and actually still go, that's a great story. That's really well presented. Oh, yeah, set to well, that th- That's what I we... was just going to make a point about that. Yeah. The 80s came on the cusp of a change. In the 60s and the 70s, stories weren't sophisticated. They pretty much told a basic A to B plot with subplots, but not actual diversions in between. <clears throat> Especially in something like Doctor Who. In Doctor Who, there's very little by way of subtext in a lot of the stories. That, I mean, the subtext in something like Dalek Invasion of Earth, for example, is all there on screen. It's what would have happened if the Nazis had won the war. You don't have to think about it. That's what the story is. It's, uh, near as damn it tells you that's what it is. And throughout the 60s, I don't know, whatever story you want to pull out of the hat, <clears throat> it's not about weaving a subtext into the story. It's, the story is the subtext. You know, something like the Green Death. You don't have to think about the fact that it's about ecological issues. It's all there in your face. The 80s is the cusp of the change where storytelling is starting to get a bit more sophisticated. But in the example of something like what we've just watched here, you've got <clears throat> you've got this real weird dichotomy between the people who are working on it. Eric Pringle obviously wants to tell something that's a little bit more sophisticated in the way that something like Kinder and Snake Dance yeah. were more sophisticated. Christopher Bailey's actually weaving a lot of stuff into those stories that isn't right in your face. The Buddhist thing is right in your face, but the things that make up the Buddhist thing aren't. So it's not like Dark Invasion of Earth where it's like really simple Nazi iconography on the screen, but with Daleks instead of Nazis. In Kinder, you've actually got lots of subtle touches that you wouldn't even know came out of Buddhist myths and parables unless you read the textbooks afterwards that point it out. Here, you've got Eric Pringle who... I don't know, it seems plain to me that Eric Pringle's got some ideas that he wants to throw in here that, in his head, add up to something similar to that. But on the other hand, you've got something like Eric Sayward who just wants an action-adventure story, right? <clears throat> so Eric Sayward's very much rooted in the 70s of the Sweeney, whereas Eric Pringle is perhaps rooted in the 90s of the X-Files, right? And the 80s is coming on the cusp of the change. So there's lots of stories in the 80s, like The Awakening, like Mordred Undead. I always bring that example up because I think it's the absolute paradigm example of what I'm talking about, that have this really horrible mishmash between simple storytelling and sophisticated storytelling, where some of the sophistication is attempting to bleed through, but it's not taking hold and it's not being rationalised in the story. Mm. So this, mm. in Mordred Undead, the story is about a guy who wants the Doctor's regenerations in order to commit suicide, which is enough of a subplot by itself. But then you throw in the whole time travel thing and all of a sudden, anything good that might be in that story is lost because the subplot tears it out of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. And The Awakening, exactly the same things going on. Mm. Lots of nice ideas going on in this story 
but the nice ideas are all getting picked away from one another. So then instead of the story cohesing at the end, so that everything wraps together and ties up, what's happening is it's being pulled in all different directions. And when you get to the end of the story, it's just like somebody pressed the stop button. It's like when Peter Davison goes into the story, the TARDIS at the end with about 15 people standing behind him who don't look that shocked about the fact that it's bigger on the inside. It's like he just presses the stop button and the plot finishes. Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> really awful. <clears throat> also, the Doctor doesn't seem to give a toss that he's just... Oh, well, it's died. Well, it's dead now. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. But, there, but there was another moment like that when Will mentions uh, about the May Queen from the past being killed, hmm. I think. He says and he something. says, the toast of little Hodcombe. Yeah, the toast of little Hodcombe. That's why he makes a joke about this person. And then he says, well, it's nothing compared to Tegan screaming. <laughs> and off he goes. And Will's that like, could have been well, Will's sister. Could have been his best friend. It doesn't friend, matter whether it's his sister or if it's somebody he's not even met before. To watch somebody being burnt to death yeah. at, this, at the Maypole, it's pretty horrific whether you've met them yeah. or not. And a bit of stoning on the back of their neck from Turlo. You know, teaching <clears> kids how to stone each other in the playground. I don't know. It just seemed... It, that was, to, uh, <clears throat> chucking, chucking boulders at each other. No, no, the bit boulders. where he knocks somebody on the back of the head and all just knock him out. Mm. Yeah, took an arrow to the knee. No, it's, so it's it, that's a savoured thing, isn't it? I'm sure. Yeah, adding yeah. a bit of uber violence in there. Oh my god! No besides the rock that Tello was carrying, he'd actually have caved yeah. that blade. He would have drained him for good. Yeah, <laughs> there was some good heavy polystyrene uh, brick lifting acting. acting. <laughs> Actually, if you look carefully, there's one shot where Turlo and Verney pick up these rocks to go and brain these two guys. <clears throat> and Andrew Verney's got something in his hand. So Turlo, in the background of the shot, because there's something else going on in the foreground, but if you're looking, Turlo's doing all this heavy lifting acting with this piece of polystyrene. And the guy who's playing Andrew Verney suddenly realises he's got to pick up this other polystyrene rock at the same time as Turlo, but he's still got something in his hand. So what he does is he picks it up with his left hand, puts the other thing down, and then brings his other right hand across so that when he walks into shot, it looks like he's carrying something heavy. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. There's a lot of that going on. Oh, yeah, that bit with Tegan. <laughs> <laughs> the bit where she turns around and says, Did you see his clothes? That was somebody from the 16th century. Even though I actually had my back to him the entire time, but didn't see him at all. <laughs> I know it's great. Uh, I wonder that fantastic. I can speak scream. like Tegan Dale thanks to last week's podcast. <laughs> oh, you've not heard this yet. Oh, well, last week because uh, well, disaster befell and I couldn't record a podcast. Right. But I had twenty minutes one afternoon, and I sat down and I just recorded a short story that I'd written, and it's got Tegan in it. So this was done entirely in one take, by the way, with no preparation. Me reading a story for 20 minutes with Tegan in it. And I did the accent and I got it absolutely perfectly correct. Did you now? Was this, was this for Star no. What are you talking about? <laughs> was this, this isn't for the podcast, is it? Blue Box podcast. Well, I didn't you have be, one you last read week. a story for the Blue Box podcast. Yeah. Last week I didn't have a podcast and I didn't. I'm really <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> I didn't have a podcast. You so did. it was either the feed was going to miss a week and the listeners would have to have waited a fortnight. Yeah. Or else I could just quickly put something together. He's had he's had a new <clears> baby. It's just it's it's playing with his brains. Sorry. Right. Okay. We need to we need to turn this around and actually say good things about the awakening as well. I thought I had. Well, let's try and actually pick some things out that we can, Lee's got his head in oh, his hands. Uh, go on. Let's actually try and pick out some. I 
still, even after that, even after watching it with you two, and even after bitching about it on here, I still enjoy it. I think it's an entertaining story. As long as, as long as you turn your brain off and Simon's face looked like the malice then. <laughs> really, that convincing. Right, I'll pick out things I like about it, Go shall on, I? Go on. <clears throat> well, one, I like the setting. I think Doctor Who really, really works when it's set in little villages, things like that. Do you know what? That was the only good thing I had to say about Twilight as well, but carry on. Well, hey, we're better in towns though than villages. Do you think so? Yeah, a town called Malice. Whoa! Right, I'm going. <laughs> yeah. That's the secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bigger, better. We should just stop now. That's absolutely genius. It, yeah, okay, it was it was like a really poor cousin to the demons. In fact, it was like a poor cousin to the android invasion. And although I love the android invasion, that's bad enough. <clears throat> but I still like that. And I still think that it evokes that setting and I like the war games aspect of it I think the war games aspect of it is a good idea for a story and although I don't think they really did enough with it I still think some of the imagery and some of what the imagery evokes is still quite provocative provocative enough that you know if you're in the right frame of mind for it it would still appeal to that side of you. Mm. So I think it had that going for it. The set, the church set, the large one, was a great set. Although for some reason, during all those scenes at the end, Michael Owen Morris throws everybody into a tiny corner of it so that you've got all these really uncomfortable that was scenes. What was so really odd was just these, it just created these little pocket sets <clears throat> out of a potentially massive... Was it? It's a little play park. Let me it? see the first. Let me see the set first. It is a huge set, yeah. and they're striding around it. And but and then the other thing is the script. Okay, I said let's pick out some good things. But the other thing is the script will then throw seven people into a room and only give two of them, three of them, something to do, mm. so that everybody else looks like a loose limb doing nothing. And that is really poor scripting because you know that is screenwriting one hundred and one. If you've got five people in a scene. You need to have good reason for those five people to be there. Is this your positive? <laughs> All right, getting back to the positives. Glyn Houston and Dennis Lill are two of the best actors ever to be in Doctor Who. And even though Dennis Lill is presumably at the behest of the director, or even if not at the behest of the director, with the director's permission, given it ten bells of ham, <laughs> he's still a great actor. It's a big actor. Tom and Jerry lump of ham, isn't it? It really is. He's still a great actor, and I can still watch him. And he made us laugh on a number of occasions. He did actually, I and mean, that, that was that's a positive thing to say that his, his acting was so over the top that we literally burst out laughing three times. It was three times <laughs> every time he came on set. In fact, every time he walked through a bloody door, it was like that with his fists and his hand and his pointing and his. Oh my! I tell God. you what, you know when Tom Baker said, "You know, I've walked through so many doors in Doctor Who, oh, I'm no. running out of interesting ways to do it." <laughs> It's a shame he couldn't get in his TARDIS, travel forward in time and take a look at what Dennis Little was doing because he was walking through doors, that man. You can he imagine really Tom Baker in this, can you? Looking at him. You'd look at him through Tom Baker stroke doctor eyes, kind of like, yes, mate, you're really overacting. Them. <laughs> you can imagine it. Can't you? Of course, Dennis Little was oh. in a Doctor Who with Tom Baker. Oh, was he? Which one? Image of the Fendal. Oh, my God, he was as well. He was good mm. in that. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's all you need to know. And Glenn Houston, of course, was in a Doctor Who with Tom Baker as well. Although he was only in one episode, which is a crime. Episode two of The Hand of Fear. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who phones his kids to let them know he's not coming home because yeah. the nuclear power station he works at is about to blow up. Oh, he's a great actor. That, that was he's a, a really good actor. That was a good. That, that was a positive thing about this, him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the few things that you said. And I think... Um, Again, I should like this. Have we said this already? That it's got elements of things like Quatermass 979, Children of the Stones, you know, Wicker Man, all that kind of stuff. It's got all those elements, the demons, but it's just a huge hodgepodge. It's just a, a trifle thrown against the wall um, with some vomit on the top. It's, it, I can now hang on positive, isn't it? <laughs> Simon, give Lee a breather and try and tell me anything that you liked about it. I like the premise. Tegan's dress. If you could... Uh, well, Tegan's say, normal uh, dress the dress she gets put in as Queen of the Maid I don't know I the one she gets put in <laughs> we think it's easy to say these things afterwards but I just think Tegan would have refused to wear the bonnet at least she would have she's you make me wear that but I'm not wearing that well my accent's better than yours okay. <laughs> oh, um, no but I like the premise and you can almost imagine you know on, on today's Doctor Who they could come up with that premise and say Right, go away and, and write. This is the this is the idea. Go away and write it, and it would work. I have to say that the three stories, Five Doctors, Warriors of the Deep, and this were the three stories that made me go from thinking Tegan to thinking Tegan. <laughs> Tegan, yeah, yeah. But um, do you know what? I really would have loved to have seen at the end, though. You know, when the, when the church blew up. Oh, bef- right. Oh, sorry, Hold that gone. thought. Yeah, the church. The church, first of all, it disintegrates inwards and then it blows up outwards, which presumably is supposed to represent the malice blowing up. Okay. But actually, it just came across as over-egging the effect. Mm. Yeah. It's like the church going in, that was fine by itself, but the bit where it then blows up afterwards just felt like too much, like a step too far. Mm. Anyway, now you've held that thought. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, this isn't just for comedy, but I can, I can actually... Imagine this becoming quite a legendary moment in Doctor Who is if the phallus. <clears throat> Sorry, it's the phallus. <laughs> <laughs> the malice, right? <laughs> oh, this is really wrong. I'm about to talk about it coming out of a church. No. I... Michael Owen Morris walked into the tone meeting and he said, right. His designer said, right. You've got this thing in here called the malice. What do you want for the malice? And Michael Owen Morris says, give me head. Hey. <laughs> is lots of head. Rather than Give me lots and just, lots of as, head. <laughs> as a, With a big glowing eye. As the big uh, piece at the at the end of the Oh god, it's all turning into a new ando. Um, just give me a big head, lots of head. Is if the because you've got the face there, give me it, head. Got, give me give me head. <laughs> There's a sound bite. As if it literally got up and arms kind of sprouted out the side of the church. And the head came up through the top of the church, and it got up like a big rickety rick from Doctor Snuggles. Yeah, and the church, and, the and church, it went, like and it started stomping around, a bit like Godzilla, at the end, like a sort of a state of decay kind of thing, where actually the body is underground. Yes. Actually, can you imagine? I mean, that? even it would be like the goodies, wouldn't it? Even if Malice stomping around with this yeah. church on its shoulders, it's like that giant cat. Yeah, and they <laughs> sort of like filmed it fast, so it seemed really slow at the end. And... I mean, you know, even if it had been really bad, it would have made it a legend. They already story. had their model of the malice that they used on the TARDIS wall. Yeah. So it's not like it wasn't there for them to do it. Well, salacious crumb that's, on the wall. Yeah. That's, yeah. 
that was quite po- that's a positive thing. I like the design of that actually on its own. If they'd have just put that in half light anywhere on the set, that's a bit creepy. It could have been if they'd have that started. was a lovely moment when they walked in the um Tardis and turned around. And, and, he, and he sort of which don't disturb it. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. So a little, little moment of brilliance. Yeah. All right, that's good. That could have been a great way. Well, it wouldn't have made for a great cliffhanger, but it would have been a great way to end the first episode with them finding the malice in the TARDIS. And then the second episode could have been the malice gets out of the TARDIS and it's loose in the church somewhere. Yeah. And, and actually, it becomes like alien where there's this yes. thing in the church. But actually, you'll be able, you know, howler monkeys, if they just got a couple of those from London Zoo and just put little frills on the outside, they could have used those. Those would be scary on set. Lee's face the betrays that... the fact that he's not even serious. <laughs> Are they the ones that chimps eat? Howler monkeys. Chimps eat? Isn't chimps that what a chimp... Chimpanzees chimp in the wild. Seat. Isn't that what a chimp craps out of? <laughs> God. I thought chimpanzees in the wild, they go hunting, don't they? And they... Don't they um... They're quite vicious. Yeah. Yeah, this... put one of those on a TARDIS wall. This podcast has lost the plot. What, just like the awakening? <laughs> You know, we need to score it. Shall we score it and move oh on? Oh, my God. i got a couple of things more to do before the end of the podcast, so should we score it and move on? Oh, dear. Out for the, of ten. For the three positive yeah. things that I gave it. You're going to give it a three? <laughs> you got it. Three oh, out wow. of ten. Cool. Must be the lowest score I've ever given anything. Uh, three out of ten from Lee, Simon. God, I was th- as soon as it ended, I was thinking a two out of ten. I don't know why I was thinking really? that. Really? Wow. I know, it's really bad. I, I, I don't think it deserves that. Or does it? Yeah. You don't think it even deserves two out of ten? <laughs> no, 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 I think it does it deserve more. Am I being really harsh? But, you know, uh, the thing is, I still don't hate it as much as Delta. There's nothing in there that makes me hate it. Because, as you say, it was still a laugh to watch. Because it was still quite, you know... There was some probably only because there was the three of us here. It was funny acting. And the, the title sequence is always good. I love the title sequence. I might give it a four, actually. For the tile sequence. Okay, that means I can I can budge up to the three then because of that entertaining entertainment value because there were some pretty... I can see what they're trying to do, so I'll give it a three. Well, I obviously liked it more than you two. I'm going to give it a six. Okay. Really? Yeah, I know that seems high, but, you know, my criteria is... It's wrong. <laughs> well, no, I don't think it failed in every single thing. Yeah. I think the design and the set construction was brilliant. I think some of the acting in it was brilliant. I think some of the acting in it, when it wasn't brilliant, was entertaining. I think the premise worked, even though they didn't work it out. And there were some good lines of dialogue in there. Mm. Yeah. There were isolated examples of some lovely bits of dialogue. Not many, but there were some in there. Not from the yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't go that high because I mean, I, I scored Gridlock at six. I mean, Gridlock is an absolute, well, it's not a masterpiece in comparison, but it's at least it's cohesive it to is. an extent. It is a masterpiece in comparison to what we've just watched. In it, that's got a lot of holes in it as well, but it's it nowhere near as many. Mm. Much more entertaining to watch than this was. Mm. All right. <clears throat> Why was it's almost like I'm possessed? I feel like I should be saying, oh, this is great. This is just my kind of story. It's part of the game. I hoped it was going to be a happy surprise. I, I really did think, it, because I hadn't I, watched it, I was going to s- find something in it. I'll I tell didn't. you what, though. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe because it's your kind of story. You know, you have other favourites in that area. And, yeah, and it's 
you know, fallen below those expectations. Mm. Right, I've watched two films since we last talked, so I give brief reviews on those two. Mm-hmm. That's nice to hear them. And then I have a a <clears throat> proposition for the pair of you. Mm. The two films I've watched, one was called Girls Against Boys and one was called The Four Warriors. So go on, nudge me. Which one do you want first? The Do The Warriors one. The Four Warriors is a really cheap film about about three crusaders returning from the Holy Land uh, with a prisoner who is one of the infidel, as they keep calling him. And on their way back through Europe, they come across this village where all the men and all the children have been taken. So there's only women left in the village. And already Lee's eyes are lighting up. No, it's not that kind of a film. They were not lighting up. Well, the leader of the three warriors who are on their way back from the Crusades, they call the four warriors because there's some legend in the village about if anybody's going to save them, it's going to be four warriors. So when they walk into the village and they've got this prisoner as well, they're mistaken for the four warriors. But of course, it's one of those films where you just know that that infidel guy is going to come good, right? So you know exactly where the plot's going. The leader of the warriors thinks they've been taken by slavers. The head woman of the village thinks they've been taken by something supernatural. And of course, it turns out to be something supernatural. Yes. The problem with (laughs) this is that premise lends itself to a lot of fun. This film takes itself very seriously. And there's no money for a good design for the demon creatures they meet at the end. So the demon creatures are a huge letdown. But having said that, even though... Have you ever seen The Sword and the Sorcerer? Yes. Mm. A similar sort of premise, and it's just ridiculously good fun, right? Yes, it is. Right, this is the opposite of that. That sword is Not... Oh, yeah. This is the opposite of that. Not fun. But having said that, it... It's competent enough to entertain. CGI'd? No no money for any effects. In fact, the only effect is right at the very, very start of the film, there's a paint box effect on the sky that looks like something out of Mind Warp. (laughs) 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 Which took me back to the 80s. That was bizarre. No, there is a, there is a, the only other effect is a practical effect on a sword, speaking of a sword and a sorcerer. But apart from that, no, it's all. But the, the cinematography, the photography on it is lovely. And it's all, I don't know where it was filmed, probably somewhere in Europe, but it looks gorgeous. And the characters, even though they're all pretty much stock characters, are engaging enough. And the actors, even though they're not, you know, in the top echelons of acting, are, they're sort of pleasurable enough that you can follow their stories and the way I put it in the review was, even though there's nothing in this film to really grab your attention, you do end up caring what happens to the people in it. Okay. That's not so, bad. Yeah. That's so, not bad. No, if if you get that far, you've done a job at least, mm. especially when you've not got much money. And it was written by and starring the uh, guy from Kill the Moon who wasn't the guy from Destiny of the Daleks. People listening will know what I meant by that. In Kill the Moon, the, the uh, what's the actress's name? She has two guys, right? Oh, I know mm. you mean, yeah. Yeah, and the, the two guys that oh, she's what? with on the moon. Yes. The Scottish guy. 
Not the one that was in porridge. Not the old one. No, no, no. There's no the one. Was he in Kilgore? No. No. Anyway, terrible podcast. No, she has. Anyway, one of the astronauts from Kill the Moon wrote this film and oh, okay. takes the lead role in it. So what you're saying is more can... rock than rock and roll. Yeah. He mm. could possibly be one of our guests on our radio show, so maybe you should give it quite a high score. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't give it a really low score. I think I gave it something like a five. I, a five is... I will probably watch it, even with everything you just said. Again, it's got all the elements of the kind of film I fancy watching. It's one of those films, when you get to the end, you'll be disappointed. Yeah. But the anticipation of getting to the end will carry you through. Okay. It wasn't a bad film. It was just a film that needed, because it didn't have any money, it needed that extra little bit of inspiration. You know a bit, what I'm always talking character. Yeah, you know what I'm always saying about indie filmmakers? If you want to get yourself noticed, you've got to throw something in there that'll get you noticed. Mm. It doesn't have that thing that's thrown in there to get you noticed, so it doesn't really do the job it sets out to do. But it carries you along, and it's not an unpleasant way to spend an hour and a half. Mm. I enjoyed it. And even though when I got to the end and I thought, well, that was disappointing, and then I struggled to find nice things to say about it, I still enjoyed it, so what can I say? So what about the girl film? Girls Against Boys, that's weird. I give that a higher score because it is a better film, but that is a case of a director who thinks of himself as more intellectual than he really is and who also wants to have his cake and eat it. A bit like Vengeance on Varos. Vengeance on Varos is this, oh no, violence is such a bad thing, but look at us. Look at us doing all this violence while we're telling you how bad it is. Mm. It's like that. The premise of Girls Against Boys is this woman has a really shitty day. Uh, Her boyfriend dumps her to go back to his wife. Then she goes out and gets wrecked and gets raped at the end of the night. And so you're thinking, again, I spit on your grave or Baise Noir or films like that where, you know, the girls take revenge on the boys. But the director is thinking... Right, let's do this intellectually. So, none of the violence, or the rape, particularly the rape, none of it is especially graphic. Most of it's in your mind, as opposed to on the screen. But the whole film has the ambiance and the nuances of an art house movie. And it's set on the sort of New York club scene. So there's lots of electronic score. The electronic score's alright, it's quite good. The way the film's shot is lovely and has a sort of dreamlike quality and it's sort of a very pleasant cinematic experience but he's intellectualized the whole thing so he stripped away all the character stripped away all the dialogue so that essentially what you're left with is a bunch of images that are supposed to add up to a position right the director's position on the issues that he's addressing but the trouble is A, it's a man trying to get inside a woman's head. And because he stripped away all the character and the dialogue, you're not really left with the impression that he managed it. And the other thing is, if you're going to do a film like that, you need to, you know, like I said just now, if you're going to say, here's my position on it, you need to hold that position. But if the point of the film is to show that taking things into your own hands might not necessarily be the best thing to do. 
because essentially that's what it is. It's about female empowerment. It's like a metaphor for female empowerment, but essentially the message is okay to a point, but you take it too far and all of a sudden it's no longer empowerment, but it's, you know, bullying from the other angle almost, as it were. Hmm. But what he does is he says, right, the moral of this story is the character does all the nasty things, gets her comeuppance, but then the other one survives to carry on doing it. So it's almost like he says, here's my message, and oh, but wouldn't it be fun if I just went that little bit further at the end? And so it ends on a pretty sour note, which undoes all the good stuff that he did before. Does she know she's seeing a married man? Mm. See, that immediately wrong-foots me and says... Uh, she Moral, doesn't deserve. No, moralistically, yeah. She doesn't she's deserve. kind of on the back foot from the from the off, really. Well, she is not the one, really, that the film's about. Right. She's the central character in it, and she's the one that you're supposed to empathise with. But actually, it's about these two female characters, and the other one is the protagonist. Hmm. She, This one, the main one, is kind of reactive and everything, and the other one is proactive and everything. But at the end, the proactive one gets her comeuppance at the hands of the reactive one, which means that the reactive one suddenly takes on the role of being proactive. And it's one of those films where at the end of the film, you have a load of you have a load of alleys that you can go down that will give you a happy ending and that will resolve things and will take you back to a status quo. But in the end, the director chooses not to go back to the status quo. It's a bit like Quentin Tarantino in a way. It's a bit like Quentin Tarantino and Alex Garland and people like that, where they say, I don't need a character that you like in my film. I can get away just on the shock value alone. Mm. And this film at the end just decides to go for the shock ending. And it's just like, no, because (laughs) if you're trying to make a point about ethics or morals or whatever... You need to show, you need to show your moral viewpoint, and you need to have redemption that's been earned. And at the end of the film, there's no earning of redemption. There's no redemption given. And in the end, you almost have to say he's taking the side of somebody who's taken the law into their own hands. Uh, I didn't phrase that very well, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like he's taking the side of losing it almost. Mm. It's like he's saying it's acceptable. And uh, that left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. I had the same feeling with Let the Right One In, um, the vampire film, which you should watch, actually, Simon. And uh, it's a beautiful film, really. It's quite visceral in places, but it's a beautiful film to watch. And it's a great story between, you know, this this very young-looking girl who's a vampire um, and this young boy. And that's what the story's about, about their character and their relationship. The fact that she has to kill humans and drink their blood um, is kind of like the byproduct of what she is. It's, it's very interesting. Like we have to kill cows to have beef in our sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you have this this young boy. And it's like you know, she's not going to tear him apart. It becomes a friend, and it's it's a really lovely and great film. But you get the shock ending, which just jolted me. And I thought, you actually didn't need that. That kind of supported for me that, that line. People, there seems to be a thing. I don't thing. know why they had to have that bit in there, but 
Yeah, Seems to be a thing in the last 20 or 30 years that has become more and more acceptable. Paranormal activity, it seems. Yeah. To finish on a shock ending. But something like Carrie, for example, that's got a shock ending, right? Uh, yeah. But the shock ending comes after the story's been told and redemption's happened where redemption needed to happen and atonement's happened where atonement needed to happen. And you've told a story. And when I say you've told a story, a story's not about a beginning, a middle and an end necessarily in sort of plot narrative terms, but a story's about a beginning, a middle and an end for your character. Mm. Your character has to come out of something and go through something to arrive at something. But more and more these days, I know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but this is just about good storytelling. Mm. More and more these days, people are saying, right, our characters, we're not going to have that beginning where they come out of something or that end where they arrive at some place. We're just going to have the middle bit where they go through something and then we'll throw in something nasty or something shocking or some big twist at the end that we've thrown in instead of having a resolution to our story. Because there's a difference between story and plot, as I always say. So if it's not resolved emotionally or... In the story, then it's just stuff. Psychologically, stuff even. happens. Yeah, that's what you exactly. say. Stuff eight, happens, eight. and whoa, at the end. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't think that's a funny dirty thing. I think it's just about good storytelling. Right. Anyway, let's move on from that, shall we? Okay, mm. a proposition, and then we'll get out of here. Oh, did it, any other of you watch Humans? First episode of Humans. I've seen two. Humans very... with a Z. No, Humans. Uh, Channel 4, new, uh, I think it's eight-part series. It's worth watching. Um, apparently it's a British remake of a... I can't remember which country it comes from, but... Uh, foreign Abroaders. Yes, Foreign Abroaders. Um, and it's very pretty to look at. And it's quite interesting. I don't think there's anything particularly new in there. Sci-fi-based. Sci-fi. It's, essentially, it's a uh, parallel... It's almost like a parallel Earth. It's it's the world as it is today, but they have these uh, things called synths, which are obviously very high level androids who act as servants, but to mm-hmm. all intents and purposes, they are humans apart from the way they act. And obviously, some are starting to show signs of emotion, and they're being hunted. So there's elements of Blade Runner in there. Right, I'm getting right. quite excited about this, uh, the miniseries Westworld, actually. All right, I'm hoping that they don't fluff that one up. But there's a there's an American miniseries coming out based on Westworld, mm-hmm. um, which would work. It's with with what they promised. It looks like it could work really really well. I hope to God they get it right. I tell you it what, could be fantastic. Actually. I watched the other day. I know this is way behind the times. So I'm not going to do a review on it or anything. But I actually watched Super Eight. Oh yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it's it. Great film. It's very very eighties. Mm, yeah, it's lovely. It's a good yeah. film. Yeah. I remember when you were telling me about it, you said the ending's a bit schmaltzy in yeah. a kind of a sort of Spielbergy schmaltzy kind of way. But because it's such an 80s film, that perfectly hits the tone. Kind of fits, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have had it any other way. It was a great film. I really enjoyed it. I'm still enjoying uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's getting better by every episode. I've not watched episode five yet, but. Ah, Peter Harness says episode five is the best episode of anything he's ever written ever. Really? Okay. Mm. Well, I've got that ready to play on the eye bless. You not watched any of it, Jonathan Strange? No, I've been trying to watch Fringe. <laughs> watched about six of Fringe, got a bit bored, and then went straight up to season three. 
I just thought, oh. I looked at the titles actually, and through the titles, I could guess what was going on. Mm. Um, and literally, I thought, I don't have to watch any. I don't have to watch about thirteen hours of this. I know exactly where it's going. Got to the point where there was a major twist in it, um, and I, I put it on. I thought, oh yeah, that's that's what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> kind of enjoyed it, and I've stopped. I, it, have you managed to avoid the Game of Thrones spoilers? Yes, I don't know anything about it. So Good, I'm so glad because so I, I, I only got I've only got as far as season two, and somebody spoiled season five for me already. No mm. way, man! Mm. No, it's way, not a man. spoiler, but for series six, there's an entirely new cast. Not that they've killed everybody off in the last episode <laughs> of series five. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past. Really, <laughs> really, really. I mean, it's pushing it to be honest. I'm no so far safe. behind, but do you know what I mean? There's, there's people who are literally in the middle of season yeah, five, but and somebody's. Honestly, but didn't they do that with that program that you enjoy watching, the Gogglebox? Yeah, they did a, a special or something, didn't they? Yeah. And they actually showed quite a lot of the opening episode where certain characters are killed off mm. from season five. And I was just flicking through, and I caught it, and I thought, "Ah, oh, great, okay, so that person's not around anymore then." Yeah, which annoyed me. It wasn't the end of the world, but I was just thought, for goodness' sake, you know, you are showing. This is the one. This is the one that people, people want to be spoiler free about Game of Thrones. Speaking of spoilers, who... stick your fingers in your ears, Lee. What's his face? Rigsy is back in episode ten. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he was a particularly good actor. No, I didn't I think either. it was a particularly well written character. No, so I'm not really sure why they're doing that. No. People are saying, "Oh, I don't like the fact that they're bringing back because they're bringing him well, back." Unless he was an underused actor, maybe he really is. Good actor, <clears throat> but who knows? Yeah, I'm curious as to whether the story. That's the, the idea struck me. The story might actually be a sequel to Flatline. Okay, because otherwise I isn't, don't really isn't understand. It one episode. No, it's the it's two episodes after that. Oh, okay, it's a one parter apparently. So it looks like there's going to be two one parters, but I think that these stand a chance of being the double banked episodes. So I'm wondering. If there might be some connection between the two double-banked episodes in some way. But apparently they're two single-parters. But I, but because he's this graffiti artist, I can't see why they would have brought him back why, in. And why the characters would bump into him again. Yeah, yeah if they're not going to use that. Because when Craig came back, the whole idea in The Lodger and Closing Time, the whole point of The Lodger was that it was about Craig's character mm. and the sort of... the sci-fi story mm. kind of had mirrors into the sort of Craig story and in closing time even more so all that stuff about the Cybermen was deliberately offsetting his journey as being a father mm. so you know they brought Craig back because they had a reason to do and it and there was a connection yeah so I can't see why they're bringing Banksy back unless they're doing an actual sequel to Flatline mm-hmm. maybe so yeah but then it's a different writer and the actual writer well it just all seems a bit odd to me Mm. We'll have to wait and see. Right, done. I think. Unless you've got anything else to. No, uh, no. Seems an odd decision, doesn't Mm, it? it Does. Right, a proposition for the pair of you. Oh, just briefly. Go on. (laughs) This doesn't matter. Female writer for season Mm. nine. I'm more and more really hoping it's going to be great for the future of Doctor Who. Mm. Well, yeah, but my my problem with it. No, you don't need to put your fingers oh. in your ears, Lee. No, my problem with it is only this, because there was such a fuss last year about, oh, no female writers. Mm. Now we've got two this year, right? Mm. Which is twice as many as have been on modern Doctor Who full stop. Mm. 
I just don't want it to be a position where they brought two female writers in so that they could say, we've got female writers in, at the expense of better stories. I don't think... Yeah. I don't think that would happen. I think it's been something that's been brewing for a while. They've wanted female writers as much as, much as they wanted male writers. And there's just been a certain... Is the word a dearth of them? Do we know what they did before? Yeah, the one, I can't remember her name, um, the one who's done episode 10 did Being Human. Wonderful. Okay. And because she did Being Human, which was a Toby Whithouse series, and because he went on to do the game, she's also done the game. Right. So she's uh, she's Australian, but she's obviously an associate. She did Neighbours, actually, years ago before. Hmm. So season, then. And funnily enough, Toby Whithouse is in, you know, amongst the writers' pool in series nine. So you wonder, actually, if that's where the connection was made and that's how she got the job. Mm. Not that I'm saying it's a job for the girls or something like that. But what I mean is, Stephen Moffat had employed female writers on Doctor Who before. It's just that their scripts never made it to the screen. Because mm. that happens a lot. Mm. You know, somebody will come in, they'll say, right, this is what I could do, and the job never gets done. Every series, if you've got 10 different writers on a series, you can bet your bottom dollar that 20 different writers have been paid to be working on that series. Not all paid the same, because if your script doesn't make it to the screen, but you will have been paid for an idea that wasn't eventually used. And women writers have been paid for ideas that weren't eventually used across the last five years of Doctor Who. And maybe it was just a case of finding the ones who would actually see it through to the end. And maybe because Toby Whithouse is back on the series and he and Stephen Moffat maybe talked and maybe the introduction was made and maybe that's how they found this one. And the other one is Catherine Tregenna. Tregenna? Don't know how you pronounce it. Oh. Tregenna, probably. Mm. Sounds Cornish. Mm. I'd have said Tregenna, but I don't know. Oh, okay. Anyway, she's done... Well, she did Torchwood. Which one? But she's also done things like, I believe, Battlestar Galactica. Okay. And I think she did something with Joss Whedon as well, if I'm oh, not mistaken. Well, I know. could be wrong. High caliber. So She's been around for... 20 years. She's brave then. She's got her confidence. So that's yeah, yeah. that's what it needs, isn't it? But she's so, American. So yeah. she was born in Britain. So she's got dual passport, I think. Okay. If I'm right, I might be misremembering. I think I just, she was born in Britain, has dual passport. But she's my American. issue isn't about numbers or anything like that. It's just about the health of the show. I just think it's a healthy thing to do, really. To... I don't see that it makes any difference. It, it shouldn't. Think, it shouldn't. But... If you've got... See... This is one thing that happens with Doctor Who. It gets singled out mm. because it has such a uh, such a fan base that is so close to it. They will forget that it exists within the pool of the rest of television. And they will look at it and they will say something like, there are no women writers on Doctor Who. Yeah. What's yeah. the world coming to? But then if you look at the rest of the BBC's output, you'll say there are women writers writing things and running things. For the BBC. Actually, if you look at Doctor Who, there are also female directors, not so many, but there are. But Doctor Who, under Stephen Moffat, has up until recently been produced almost exclusively by women. So it's not like women don't have positions of power on Doctor Who. It's just that those positions of power have been more in the case of facilitation rather than authorship. Mm -hmm. So... But if you look at the whole of television across the board, then you see, okay, actually, <clears throat> female writers, there is representation. 
And if there's less representation of female writers than there is of male writers across the board, then maybe there's a case for saying there's an ingrained sexism there. Or maybe, given that, you know, for the last two decades, the industry has actively been fighting against that, the old guard have been disappearing and the new guard have been coming in. And I think in this country today, like I think with the race thing, and like I think with the um, abortion thing that was brought up in Kill the Moon, it's not an issue. I don't think people running television these days have an issue with whether you're a woman or a man. They just look at who's doing the job. Yep. Who's yep. the best person for the job. Exactly. So if Stephen Moffat has employed male writers but female producers, then it just means that the best person for the producing job has been a woman and the best person for the writing job has been a man. And what you don't do is then say, right, we need to switch that over mm. and get a man mm. doing this job and a woman doing this job. You have to look at everyone on a case-by-case basis. Absolutely. It's like if you're in a craps room throwing dice and every time you throw a dice, you get a six, mm. right? If you get a six and then you get a six and then you get a six and then you get a six, that's just the way the dice fell. That's not, you know, you can't say to the dice, right, I've not seen enough ones. That I don't think there's enough representation for ones. You know, it's, a, it's probably a bad analogy, but you know what I'm saying? You don't, the dice falls, or the die, because I'm talking singular now, I started off meaning the pair, <laughs> But when I said six, obviously, I said, the die falls where it falls. It doesn't fall at your behest because you make an imposition upon it. And it's the same with scripts. The scripts that come in, if they're good scripts and they're all by men, then that's just the way it fell. The mm. good scripts are by the men. Do you know what there's, there's going the to be? Workable there's going to be a natural process going as well. I mean, let's face it, 10 years since New Who, and there's a <clears> far greater proportion of female fans of the show now so they're going to be going the growing. next generation yeah yeah exactly certainly. there's masses and of fanfic out there isn't it, by female absolutely and that's going to start masses. filtering through now yeah mm. but that's so, the next generation you can't impose it upon this generation no no absolutely not no yeah but we know that through through you know the writing projects we've been involved with yeah, yeah. we know quite a few you know amazing female writers so but actually in terms of what proportion of representation you've got? Yeah, it's tiny fractions. It isn't is. It? No, it is a small proportion. But yeah. um... we have good podcasting. Yeah, I mean, we're all of pretty much the same age as people writing Doctor Who, right? And yeah, you go on iTunes and type in Doctor Who podcasts, mm. and how many come up with any women on them at all? Mm. Let alone something that's all female, like Verity. You know. Women are coming into it, but they're just not there yet, which is perhaps why Stephen Moffat's had this problem, Mm. which is not that he's gone out necessarily to seek female writers, but that the female writers that have come under his purview thus far haven't come up with the goods, which may be because they've had another project, so they've had to bin Doctor Who to go off and do something else, or it may be because their story wasn't working and he's had to say, look... It's just not going to work. I'm just going to have to use this one by someone else instead. For whatever reason, it just hasn't happened yet. Which doesn't mean it won't happen, but by the same token doesn't mean it has to be forced. Recently on our radio show, um, our last guest was Emily Holyoke, who's uh, Mm. a playwright. She's brilliant. Yeah, it was quite a brilliant show. 
and um, before she came on, because she has got an interest in feminist issues, isn't she? And yeah. um, it was fascinating to talk to her. And um, we sort of looked down a list of guests at one of the events you, you organised, and we were talking about yeah. she's only the second female guest we've ever had on our radio show. And that's not a conscious thing. And the other one was a stripper. Yeah. <laughs> hey, burlesque dancer. Stripper, I know, but you know, and, but you can absolutely see why people might focus on that and say, "Oh, you can see what type of you know." People make assumptions, mm. just like they make assumptions that. Um, Stephen Moffat's sexist, or he's this, or he's that, purely on these little facts. Not They don't look at the gaps in between. The but the process. absolute truth is, these things just are not issues anymore. No. But it's just that the evolution that has made them not be issues, the wheels of that evolution are still rolling, and it's not an issue in our minds, doesn't necessarily mean that that's translated into a physical reality yet. It will do. Mm. It will happen, but what I think is the issue here is that people are trying to force it. Yes. You don't force it, you let evolution take its natural course. Mm. And we're one generation away, perhaps, maybe two generations, but I, the way I think uh, one generation is perhaps more likely, we're one generation away from that natural course having taken its full effect. Mm. But don't try and force it, because when you try and force things, you get people's backs up, and then people fight, fight against it. They do, yeah, and they get accused of tokenism and all that mm. kind of... And you could end up in a situation, and I'm not saying this is the situation, you could end up in a situation whereby either the person responsible will deliberately use somebody of... Because we're talking gender, I'll use this example. We'll deliberately use somebody of the opposite gender that they know can't do the job mm. in order to prove the people who are trying to force the issue, no, you're wrong. Or they'll deliberately use somebody they think can do the job, but turn down somebody else of the same gender rather than the opposite gender who would have done the job better and you actually get an inferior result mm. ensuing from that. So just let the process happen naturally. Mm, mm. Stop making things about things that aren't there. There are, there are battles you can fight, but sometimes the battles that you're fighting aren't necessarily being fought in the right way. Mm, mm. No, no, that sounds really patronising. <laughs> I know, but I didn't, I didn't know yet. Oh, okay, my you proposition... Can, you can edit that out if you want. Nah, <laughs> I don't do editing. Okay, my proposition for you is this. Uh, I ended up in a position this week at work whereby, as I said to you just before we press record, I uh, got to work, realised I didn't have any podcasts on my iPod and ended up, because I always download the Blue Box podcasts when they turn up on our iTunes feed, but because I've already pre-listened to them before they go out, I never end up listening to them. And this week I ended up in a position whereby I just had some Blue Box podcasts and I ended up listening to our Box Out podcasts, where we did mm. the sci-fi films. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the end of that, we said, um, in a couple of weeks, we'll do one on horror films. Mm. And of course, I'd forgotten all about it, but we never actually got round to it. Oh. So next week, let's do a Box Out on horror films. Now, I know we drew up a list when we were doing the sci-fi ones of the horror films we should cover, but here's my proposition for you. My proposition for you is thus, Lee, Simon, me... We will go away from here now and we will think about this for a few days and we will write down the name of the three horror films that we either A, think are our favourites 
or B, think we'd most like to talk about, or even C, would most like to recommend to the listeners, maybe you should have one of each. But we each come back here in a week's time with a list of three stories none of the rest of us know what's on that list. And as we press record on the podcast next week, we get our lists out, we put them down on the table, and even if we've all chosen the same three stories, we'll only end up talking about three films. Whatever films are on the table in front of us, we'll talk about. Love it. Because when we do a box out podcast, we always end up talking about other things. So if there's something like The Omen that we think we should talk about, and it's not on any of our lists... We'll probably end up talking a bit about the omen anyway, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Let's just each come with a list of three films and not tell the others what they are. And that'll be a fun way to start that podcast and we'll end up talking about horror films, right? Totally. Okay. Next week then a box out about horror films. And until then, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. No, but you'd be able to come up with three films. I would have thought so, yeah. Because, you know, even if you don't like horror films, you've seen horror films. Mm. And like I said, it doesn't need to be favourites. It can be just ones that you think are worth talking about. Mm. And I tell you what, horror, because I've left it this open, is such a wide open genre. Let's try and avoid horror films that are also sci-fi, right? Yeah, because we've already done stuff that. Like we've done that already. Yeah, let's try and make it horror films that are... Sort of either supernatural or psychological or horror films. Or whatever, mm. you know, mm. they, they all count, don't they? Yeah, I guess. Okay. And actually, Christopher Lee's just passed away, so that's quite a good... No, actually, because our criteria is it has to be something made since 1963. That's right. Which is... Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. And it will be nice, because I thought about doing a Christopher yeah. Lee thing at the start of this podcast, but then I thought... Everybody else is doing it, actually. It's going to be nearly two weeks. Yeah, most people are doing it. Already. And I thought that'll just come across as... Lazy. Not lazy, but... <laughs> oh, by the way, he died a couple of weeks ago. I thought we'd do a special on him. No, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but that was actually one of the other things that put the thought in my mind. But yeah, no, I thought if we do a little... Like when we did, I did the Leonard Nimoy thing, right, at the start of that podcast a while yeah. back, mm. I thought if I do that again, it'll just look like I'm... Yeah, repeating myself well, in yeah, a way that's patronising towards the person I'm talking about. And then you go, about. yeah, well, you did them, but you didn't do this person who passed away on such and such a day. Yeah. Um, so what were the three criteria again? It was... Um, After 1963. No, no, one to recommend to... No, just, three, just think of three horror films that you want to talk about, whether they're your favourites, whether you've picked them just because you want to talk about them, or whether you pick them because they're films that you don't think enough people know and yeah. that you should be recommending. So many of them. 
I know, that's why I thought, but that's mm. potentially nine films. I think we'll have somewhere look, in between three and nine. Like it's a, a watching uh, watching books book. You should do one on horror. That'll, that'll work. Well, doing one on films after um, the TV one. Oh yeah, yeah. It's going to be two years down the line because yeah. there's going to be one other in between. No, but yeah, there's going to be British film fantasy sci-fi horror. Mm. Okay, all right. That's that's. I'm glad. <laughs> Um, oh yeah it couldn't that was the thing with the you and who books it's like after the first one I always thought each one should be a step up so the first one was just general essays about Doctor Who then the second one was specific essays tailored to every single story that's ever been on mm. and then the next one after that had to go somewhere else so it had to be just British telefantasy and then if you're going to go a step up from that it has to be British fantasy at the movies right mm. but, and that's where it stops I mean your last the, the one that's happening now there isn't any other book like that out there. Come no. so many. Things. No, I'll tell you. I so. thought of another one the other day. You've got to tell me now. It's already been done. Um, We're still recording. I have to go so we could have this as an Easter egg. <laughs> I thought the last I, I few podcasts we've not had an Easter egg. Anyone to know this idea? You're already writing one. So. Actually, you're already writing one, so if you say an idea and I stick it on the website, I might get an essay on that, whereas otherwise I might not have one. Toys. Which is what? TV series? No, no, no. About toys. Oh, an idea for a book? Yes. Oh, I suppose you could do, but that's kind of... Actually, that isn't such a bad idea. That that goes into board games and all kinds, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So it's all about, but it's all about memories. So it's all stuff like Stretch Armstrong and it's... Um, well, there's a specific thing about the you and who is that it has to be kind of specifically British. It could mm. be British toys, couldn't it? Yeah, but a lot of the toys you're thinking about originated elsewhere. Mm. That's the thing about toys. We tend to think of them, because they come out of our childhoods, we tend to think of them as specific to who we were and where we lived. But actually, a lot of those toys came from elsewhere. A lot of them. You racist? Why would that be racist? <laughs> no, the, that's kind of the thing about no, because we get in the you and who books we get like foreign perspectives, but we like yeah. foreign perspectives on British stuff. Yeah, 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 which is fascinating kind of, actually. Yeah, I do find that fascinating. But I think that's why being on the inside was such a fascinating listen. I don't think it's a thing that I built into it in the first place, but I think it's just something that's developed out of it. Is that it is perspectives on Britishness. One of the things about you and who else is that it kind of tells the story of our culture in this country for the last six decades. Well, what about if we research toys that did originate from this country then? There's loads, surely. Stuff like Meccano and... Well, if you want to propose it to me as an idea and edit it yourself, I've got four pages of guidelines for editors. Okay. <clears throat> That's not a bad idea there, Simon. I'll have to have a look through and see... Because mm. things like D and D, it's not. It's that's not a British creation. No, no. And obviously, it? Star Wars figures and things like that. But Action Man surely okay. is British. Yeah. I may be wrong. Sabuti. Action Man. That's probably American, isn't it? I don't think so. I don't know. Oh, I was it? Say. Was it Palatoy? Maybe it was. I don't know. Exactly. But you look at it. It's a male soldier doll. Yeah. It's, you know, you'd be surprised at where some of the things... And oftentimes, actually, they've been retailed for Britain, mm. but they've still come from elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, it'd be... And 
you know, a lot, a lot of the things, a lot of the things, a lot of the things that people remember and would write about have come from Japan. Yeah. Or continental Europe, North America. And the other way around it is to just have British writers, which is really, it's not, uh, it's not a done thing, is it? You have to have a fine line between limits mm. and sort of a criteria that gives your book an identity. Because mm. if you put too many limits on it, you won't get enough of a spectrum to make it worth reading. But if you don't give it criteria that give it an identity, mm. it'll be just so wide that it, it loses any sense of a narrative bands, or story. British bands. British rock bands. Well, you could do that. But then kind of the whole point about watching books is that... Yeah. TV. Mm. Yeah, essentially. It doesn't have to be. It's a... No, I know. No. Actually, bands might be an interesting idea. Mm. And actually, that then sells it to a whole, wholly different audience. Mm. Mm. And actually, hopefully, what you do is, instead of advertising it to the people who have already written for you and who, you put it on a rock website first and say... Get as many of those brand new people in as you possibly can before re-advertising it. Or we could do the electronic bands, do it off a bag of two knobs. That could be part of the same book, though, easily. Because mm. mm. then you start getting the history. Yeah, don't narrow it to No, no, no. You, you then get this, this new history, you know, a fan's perspective, like you say, of, of music throughout, you know, the British decades. Everybody from the 1950s, you know, whatever, it has to be 1963, that's what you like. So no, it doesn't have to be 1963. Well, that's when the Beatles started. That's when music really started, wasn't it? But, no, you'd uh, start with the late <laughs> 50s with the bands that... Yeah, I w- think... When the bands I start think, I know you're saying about not bands. limiting, but I think you could limit to a decade, though, couldn't you? If I did the 80s. I mean, that would be... My well, no, what I huge, think you should do... What I think you should do, because you won't get essays on everything and you won't find people to write about certain things, mm. what you should do, with you and who else, with the British telefantasy thing, what I thought was... It's one book, unless it gets out of hand, in which case I split it somewhere in the middle, mm. do 50s to 70s and then 80s to noughties or whatever. So with bands, what you do is you say, it's about British music from the late 50s to now. Mm. And if you get a whole host of essays, you know, hundreds and hundreds of essays about all these different bands, you say, okay, fair enough, we do it in volumes, one for each decade or whatever, mm. or you pick other less arbitrary ways of splitting it up, like 1959 to 1976 and then 1976 to 1989 or something, mm. you know, or 88. You know, punk would be a dividing point, acid house would be a dividing point, something like but that. But if I stick to the rules in as much as 63 onwards, that makes a sort of sense as No, well. no, 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 the rules for 63 onwards governs what we talk about on the Box Out podcast. It's got nothing to do with watching oh, sorry. books. Yeah, yeah. That's just Lee being a funny bugger. <laughs> no, but you're right. When bands started, mm. I think you'd go back to just before the Beatles. Yeah, because the Beatles came out of, and while actually you probably will end up signing with the Beatles because you probably won't find anybody to write about something from before the Beatles. But then again, it can be anybody of our age. It may be that somebody is a massive Buddy Holly, not Buddy. Yeah, Buddy Holly mm. in the cricket. Americans, so. Yeah, well, do you know, but it's you know also it's got to be about. Um, it's got to be that personal angle, though. It's not got to be about the band itself. No, it's no. Be about what it means to the, to you. So. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so you have to make it clear. But music is very, very like that. It's very important. Mm. I mean, you, you, 
you're having bands, so I mean it's huge bands, but don't forget there are millions of solo artists and other things like that. But I suppose again you have to stick with the one thing. But there are so many. There are so many bands out there. So yeah, would you would you, would, would you count Gary Newman because he's not a band, is he? Recording artists. Yes, exactly. So it'd be record, recording artists, wouldn't it? Not band. Mm. So mm. Then, in which case, it can go on yeah. and on forever. People are going to choose their favourites, like oh, Banana Rama. Mm. May, may have been a particular favourite for some of your pet shop boys. For instance, you'd have to write that, wouldn't you? Well, we know someone who'll do Banana Rama. The other thing exactly. is, <laughs> it's nice to talk about um, it like this, but yeah. the other thing is, you have to be prepared to sit down and do the work. Yeah. Lot, that would be a yeah. huge amount of work. Because you have to go through every word that everybody's written in every single essay forensically and make sure it's the right word before you commit it to print. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could get away with making. Can't you get away with making money on this one instead of just charity all the time? No, you can't. Mm-hmm. Because of the way you source the material. Uh, of course, yeah, you need to pay the authors. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. What's <laughs> <laughs> well, alright, we just tell them it's good exposure. Yeah. yeah. So 50% is going to charity, that's your bit. The other 50% is coming to me for making the book we're working right. I'll, I'll do it for Fiverr. Donald and Davy stop. Yeah, I know. When you've got an itchy bottom, do you rub it on your wife's chin? <laughs> do, do, you put, do you put nougat on your arms in the evening time before, when the birds sing? When you can't find your remote control, do you punch the television set with a twig? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Not paying writers. <laughs> Outrageous. I'm going to turn this recording off before this gets any I'm worse. I'm joking.